turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13 today. Psalm 13. It is a song of lament. And it begins, Psalm 13 begins with this idea of asking the question very honestly to the Lord, how long, O Lord? How long will we see the brokenness? How long will we see the difficulty? How long will it seemingly as if you have turned your face from us? And, and the lamentations, uh, a lament, a song of lament is a type of psalm. And sometimes when we actually read the laments within the psalms, we become uncomfortable because we go, how can somebody seemingly be disrespectful to the Lord God Almighty? How can we actually say these things? As a matter of fact, there are times, um, and, and some of you know, you know, like when you have kids and, and you're a dad, and your kids might say something to, your mom, uh, to their mother, and you hear it, and you just look at them and you go, I think you've lost your mind. I can't believe that you think that you are going to be able to live in our house speaking to your mother that way. Well, in a similar vein, we see the laments. We see the laments because there's this dark night of the soul, this difficulty, and we're not given uh, the, the understanding as to what David is actually struggling with. We just know that he is struggling mightily right now. So, having said that, let me, let me read for it, and we're going to get into what a lament is. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Um, How long, O Lord, will you forget forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. As we um, think about that, We all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You see how heavy that was, the first four verses? I mean, it's just a heaviness of soul, like a heaviness that David says, I am overwhelmed with grief. As a matter of fact, when we we think about this in particular, I think about the book of Lamentations, which is just one really long lament. And the book of Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 20, uh, where Jeremiah is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, But how many of you have been so overwhelmed that you literally are sick to your stomach, that your stomach is churning within you, that you don't want to eat, you don't want to do anything because you're just overwhelmed by this? The idea of lament, um, let me read uh, why people fall into lament, why we um, think about some of these things and some of the struggles that we have. James Boyce uh, writes this way, and I just, I, I couldn't duplicate it, so I figured I'd read it. He goes, let, let, me, let me suggest a few areas of our lives 
in which this happens. When, when things become difficult and where we feel as if we're abandoned, it happens in family relationships. It may be that the happiness of the early days of marriage have been replaced by the stress of trying to work out personality conflicts or other difficulties. You may be wondering if God has ceased to bless your marriage. Again, your problems may involve children. You remember the early days when it was comparatively easy to rear them. Your family had many good times together, but now one or more of your children is antagonistic and rebellious, and everyone else in the family suffers under the inevitable strain. Nobody has fun anymore. Has God forgotten? Have the blessings of God been taken away forever? Some of you feel that way. It happens in our work. Perhaps in the early days of your business, you seemed to make rapid progress and succeeded at almost everything you touched. But you have entered a middle period of your career in which your early successes have leveled off and your business is stagnant. Some of you feel that way. It can happen in the church work too. Growth levels off. Times of harvest give way to times of reorientation or testing, to seasons of hard plowing and sowing. Where are God's blessings? Some of you have felt that way in the last few years. It can happen in our spiritual lives. There may have been years when you saw many spiritual victories and could chart rapid spiritual progress, but for many months now, you have been in a deepening slump. You know that God deals with us by grace, but the lack of blessing has continued for so long that you have become morbidly introspective. You've been dredging up past sins and have been wondering, is God punishing me for what I did then? I confessed the sin and believed he forgave me, but maybe he is bringing it up again and putting me on hold because of it. In extreme situations, you may even think, God has abandoned me forever. Some of you feel that way. And David has felt that way. In Psalm 13, David says, this is the cry of my soul. Um, when we think about um, the, the idea of a lament, let me just explain a little bit about what a lament is so that we can um, understand them. Uh, I actually have a slide uh, that I want, I'm going to show you. If you can put the first slide up. Um, uh, this is from Paul Miller's book on, on lament. If you see this, you see hope as the vertical axis, and you see time as the horizontal axis here. And what you find is that your reality, the reality that you have, whether it's in the broken midst of your family relationships uh, or the difficulty in this life, that's the reality. And you see the hope that you have, right? The hope and the promises of God that you might live a life that is full and flourishing and abundant. And the promises of God, you'll give you great comfort. But in the midst of this, what you find is that your hope is up here, but your reality is way down here. And the middle part there, we call that the desert. We call that the desert. And I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, that the desert is a dry place. It is a, well, you know that, right? Like that's not hard. Everybody knows the desert is a dry place, right? But it's a hard place. It's a difficult place. Paul Miller says this about this. He says, the hardest part of being in the desert is that there is no way out. 
You don't know when it will end. There's no relief in sight. A desert can be almost anything. It can be a child who has gone astray, a difficult boss, or even your own sin or foolishness. Maybe you married your desert. I didn't, by the way. Yeah. God customizes deserts for each of us. Joseph's desert is being betrayed and forgotten in an Egyptian jail. Moses lives in the Midian desert as an outcast for 40 years. The Israelites live in the desert for 40 years. David runs from Saul in the desert. All of them hold on to the hope of God's word, yet face the reality of their situations. The theme of the desert is so strong in Scripture that Jesus reenacts the desert journey at the beginning of his ministry by fasting for 40 days in a desert while facing facing Satan's temptations. His desert is living with the hope of the resurrection, yet facing the reality of his father's face turned against him. The father turning his face against you is the heart of the desert experience. Life has ended. It no longer has any point. You might not want to commit suicide, but death would be a relief. It's very tempting to survive the desert by taking the bread of bitterness offered by Satan to maintain a wry, cynical detachment from life, finding a perverse enjoyment and mocking those who still have hope. God takes everyone he loves through the desert. The desert, as difficult as it is, it is a cure for our wandering hearts restlessly searching for our new Eden. The first thing that happens is we slowly give up the fight. Our wills are broken by the reality of our circumstances. The things that brought us life gradually die. Our idols die for lack of food. The still dry air of the desert brings the sense of helplessness that is so crucial to the spirit of prayer. Brothers and sisters in the desert, there is actually blossoming plants. You come face to face in the desert with your inability to live, to have joy, to do anything of lasting worth. Suffering burns away the false selves created by cynicism or pride or lust. You stop caring about what people think of you. The desert is God's best hope for the creation of an authentic self. Desert life sanctifies you. You have no idea you are changing. You simply notice after you've been in the desert a while that you are different. Things that used to be important no longer matter. And after a while, you notice your real thirst. You begin to thirst after God. You begin to thirst after His ways. You cry out to God so long and so often that a channel begins to open up between you and God. When driving, you turn off the radio just to be with God. At night, you drift in and out of prayer when you are sleeping. Without realizing it, you have learned to pray continuously. The clear, fresh water of God's presence that you discover in the desert becomes a well inside your own heart. The best gift of desert is God's presence. He leads me besides still waters. Now, this idea of the desert Sometimes we can actually take it upon ourselves, and, and there's, there's a problem sometimes. Um, go to the next slide. Uh, this is all from Paul Miller's book. Sometimes what we do as Christians is rather than actually dealing with the desert, we say, um, you know, we're just going to raise, our, we're, we're going to be optimistic, we're going to be positive, and we're not going to deal with the desert, but rather we're going to just live in the midst of denial. Denial that the desert is even happening. Denial that my, my current reality is difficult. 
So rather than crying out to God with the difficulties of our life, we deny the difficulties and just raise ourselves and go like, it's not really happening. You know, that child that has wandered away from the faith, that's really not happening. The difficulties I have in my marriage, they're not really happening. And so you, you live in denial and you have unreality in the midst of this. This is not a Christian perspective at all. Not at all. Denial, you know, we, we, we filter in things in the midst of denial. We, we think that, you know, rather than deal with the issues, you know, some of us will go to sleep and try to sleep through our difficulties. Other people will shop through their difficulties in the midst of denial. Because just for a moment, we want something that feels good. And sometimes, you know, even Amazon allows you that one click. How many of you guys feel really good when you get the one click? You're like, click. And it's like Christmas every day when you go to your, your, your door and there's Amazon packages. And some of you are living in the midst of denial and you're using Amazon to help you through. Go to, go to the next slide. Some of you have determined that, you know, rather than uh, being in the desert and crying out to God, what we'll do is we will actually control things ourselves. You know, um, in her book, you know, A Heart Set Free, studying through the Psalms, uh, the author Christina Fox says this about control. We trust in methods, solutions, and the latest research and live by them all. In effect, we worship our solutions If a serious illness is what we fear, we'll put all of our hope in special diets, medications, or exercise routines. Control is something we all desire, but none of us have. We don't know what will happen in the next moment, much less next year, yet we still strive to take control of our lives. We make plans and pursue them. Scripture says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps in Proverbs. Control was something Adam and Eve wanted. They desired to be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted the sovereign control and knowledge that God has. As children of Adam, we desire the same. Our desire and pursuit of control are, in fact, a denial of God's control. We don't trust His plans. How many of you have felt like that this week? That, Lord, I know you're in control, but it doesn't seem like you care. It doesn't seem like you're around, and I'm not really trusting in your plans for my life and for what the world needs right now. That's where we are. That's where some of us live. Some of us live in denial. Some of us live in determination. And then the last slide is this. Um, Some of us just live in despair. So rather than have any hope at all, and what the sovereign Lord of the universe will do, our hope shrinks down to the, to the level of our circumstances. And our circumstances are so difficult that we just live in the midst of despair. I've seen this and you've seen it. So what do we do with this? The, again, the last slide, go to this, and it's, it's the, the last slide is the first slide. Brothers and sisters, what do we do in the midst of the desert? what we do is we do like David and we actually lament. We actually come and we lament to our Father. The very emptiness of the desert drives the power of lament. A lament doesn't flee the desert, it fights the desert. It takes it on. In fact, the bleakness of the desert emboldens the lament. Laments might seem disrespectful, but in fact, they are filled with faith. A raw, pure form of faith that simply takes God at his word. It asks the question, why haven't you? A lament brings together promise and hope. So let's look at Psalm 13. You can turn that off. 
um, as we look at Psalm 13 and what David is going through. Again, this psalm is, is broken up into to three sections. The first is that you know, David, uh, and I'm, I'm just stealing this from Alistair Begg because it was better than anything I could come up with. You know, he says that David comes despairingly, he cries honestly, and he went away joyfully in the midst of this lament. So the first two verses, we see this. He says, he comes despairingly. Notice what David says. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now again, this is, this is not somebody who does not experience the faith. David is a man after God's own heart. He is a spiritual giant. And yet some of us feel as if we actually honestly pray this, that we are being disrespectful to God. God records this in his word so that we might have good relationship with him, real relationship with him, rather than a stoic, cynical, distant faith. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now that is an allusion to the Lord blessing us. He's saying basically, you know, when we think about the great ironic benediction, the Lord lift up his face and shine upon you. He's saying, have you turned your face away from me so that the blessings of the Lord are no longer around me, so that I'm overwhelmed by the lack of blessings? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and sorrow in my heart all day? Now, that's a problem. That is a problem. And and, and we think about that in, in the midst of, you know, when we begin to become so introspective that the, the sorrow in my heart is all that I'm thinking about, right? David is coming despairingly to the Lord. How many of you are so wrapped up in the situation that you're in that you can't see the forest for the trees? That you've become myopic with regard to your own life so that the, your whole life and the world around you has been shrunk down to this one problem. And it's a problem, and it's in the desert, and it's significant, but we become so introspective that Spurgeon calls us that we begin to ruminate upon this. It's a word we don't use very often, right? Ruminate. It's a good word. Spurgeon says this, he says, ruminating upon trouble is bitter work. There are certain things that it's better to swallow than to chew. And what he's doing is he's chewing when he should be swallowing. And he says, and when you add to that the sound of my enemies seeking to triumph, triumph over me, it's like pouring vinegar on an open wound. The laughter of his enemies sounds louder in his ears. Isn't it funny sometimes that, you know, um, just for a second, when you give your kids medicine, and you try to tell them, just swallow it because it's bitter, what do they do? They chew it, and then they spit it out. And what they need to do is just swallow it all, right? But rather than that, we chew on it. And the sorrows that we have, we, we go over and over, and we, we, we replay the tapes of the broken relationships and the, and, the, and the difficulties and the frustrations that we have, all of those things, right? We just continue playing the tape over and over again, over and over again. We ruminate on these things. That's what David is doing right now, ruminating on these things. But in the midst of this, and, and even, you know, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four times, you know, we see this churning that's going on within David. There's, his soul is in tumult, as, as it were. But after he 
comes despairingly, he cries out honestly. Because you see in verse 3, and this is really the, the form of lament that we're called to have. We come to the Lord with, with those things that are troubling us, and then we cry out, what do you want? Well, David says in verses 3 and 4, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Now, this is an act of faith. Because what he's saying there is, remember in verse 1, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Your, your face is hidden from me. I'm getting no counsel at all. Lord, in verse 3, he, he's crying out honestly, Lord, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lord, would you hear my prayers? Would you show up? Would I know that you are real in the midst of the situations of my life, in the desert wanderings that you have placed me in? Would you help me? He says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Again, you know, that's a, an allusion to, you know, how long will you hide your face from me? Essentially, the, the Lord is in the dark. But he's saying, Lord, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I mean, we think about that being, you know, dying from a broken heart. Or being filled with despair. Lord, light up my eyes so that I might see what you see. Light up my eyes so that I might believe the promises that you have for me. Light up my eyes so that I can see the blessings that I have had in the past and that can hope for in the future. In verse 4, lest my enemy says, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I mean, he, David says, like, Lord, turn my enemies away from me. Lord, light up my eyes. Lord, show up. Consider and answer me. I mean, I think about this um, in the midst of, of Jesus. You know, Jesus laments. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that is a faith-filled prayer. And sometimes I, I was confused by that. I'm like, how could Jesus, I mean, Jesus is the great God-man. How can he actually say those things to his Father? What, what's, what? And I know he's quoting Scripture, but he's lamenting the fact that here is Jesus' reality. Jesus' reality is the cross. But his hope, his hope, which is answered, is the resurrection. The desert for Jesus was his father turning his face from him. And believers, you know, and children of God, when we think about what Jesus has done, and we think about the desert through which he travailed for us, there's nothing that you can't bring Jesus that he doesn't understand. There's nothing that you're experiencing right now, as difficult as it may be, that Jesus did not experience. That's good news. But the great news is the resurrection because in the midst of the lament of Jesus, God the Father answers the Son through the power of the resurrection. And when, he, when Jesus is raised to life, he conquers sin and death. Won't be any more desert in the new heavens and new earth there will only be the fulfillment of the promises. That's good news. What happens, though, in the midst of, 
you know, verses four and five. Because, I mean, I'm reading this psalm this week, and I'm like, how long, how long? Consider and answer me. My enemies are all this. And then in verse five, I'm like, are there some missing verses from this psalm? Like, what's going on that there's this huge transition that goes from, you know, crying out, out honestly, coming despairingly, you know, crying out honestly, what happens so that he can be led out in joy and actually sing? I'd like to know. Well, um, let me quote Boyce again, because he, he says it so well with regard to, to prayer. He says, for the true child of God, there is always some awareness of this truth, regardless of how deep his or her depression may be. We may be depressed even to the point of feeling utterly abandoned, but the fact that we feel abandoned itself means that we really know God is there. To be abandoned, you need somebody to be abandoned by. Because we are Christians and have been taught by God in Scripture, we know that God still loves us and will be faithful to us regardless of our feelings. So what do we do? We pray as David does. This does not exclude seeking help professionally if our depression is severe. We often need help in order to hang on and begin to work through our dark feelings. But above all, we need to pray. We need to pray consistently and urgently, especially about our feelings of abandonment. David's prayer has three requests. Look on me, answer, give light to my eyes. His feelings tell him that God has turned away from him, hiding his face. I want you to think about that. The idea that our feelings you know, will sometimes um, cause us to feel as if God has abandoned us. How many of you guys, just for a second, have been led astray through your feelings? Anybody here? Anybody here ever been led astray by your feelings? The scriptures say in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can discern it? And yet we continually allow ourselves to be led astray by our feelings. And sometimes we allow our feelings, um, sometimes uh, we allow ourselves to ruminate and we allow ourselves to go, you know what? I just want to be sad about this. You know, Alistair Begg says, um, let's acknowledge the fact that there is a perverse sense of satisfaction in feeling sorry for ourselves. And there is more than a hint of that experience in this psalm. And we like to go away by ourselves and play it over and over again. Again, he says there is a perverse sense of satisfaction in feeling sorry for ourselves. Moping, just being despondent. But what we find in the midst of this psalm is we find this faith where this, this one who prays finds that, that God is going to answer him. So the first thing he asks God to do is turn around and look in his direction once again. His feelings tell him that God is no longer speaking to him and he will never speak again. So the second thing he asks God to do is answer his questions. His feelings have told him that all is lost and that his enemy will triumph, no doubt meaning that his enemy will eventually succeed in killing him. So he asks God to give light to his eyes, that is, to preserve him and to restore him and to, and to a full physical and mental health. And God does, at least to this extent. David recovers his trust in God and looks forward to the day when he will be able fully to praise him for his goodness. The uh, theologian Leupold uh, says at this point, faith has climbed out of the lowest depths of despair 
where it had well-nigh perished into the full sunlight of godly hope. Now it can wait for the help to come, for it is sure it will not fail him. There's this, you know, notice in, verse, in chapter uh, 13 of the book of Psalms that David's um, circumstance doesn't change. What changes is David. David changes. And, and the change that occurs for David, when we, when we think about this, it is a change, um, it is a volitional change, not an emotional change meaning that I am determining to do this rather than feeling like I should do this. Because again, brothers and sisters, our feelings will lead us astray. Do you feel as if God has abandoned you? Then that is a feeling, that is a a lie whispered in your ear by the enemy. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he never leaves his children. Do you feel like you're in the desert and that you don't understand why you're in the desert? And that you don't feel like you want to be in the desert anymore? The Lord says, trust me, because the desert is a place where I'm refining you. I'm exposing your sin and the false idols of your life so that you can walk with me faithfully. Let me just tell you this, though. I don't want to go to the desert. I don't want to live there. I don't want to be there. But I will tell you that it is in times of of difficulty that the Lord strengthens our faith and refines us. Thomas Watson said it like this, as the hard frost in winter bring on the flowers in the spring, and as the night ushers in the morning star, so the evils of affliction produce much good to those that love God. But we are ready to question the truth of this and say, as Mary did to the angel, how can this be? Therefore, I shall show you several ways. He says, you know, Luther said, Martin Luther said that he could never rightly understand understand some of the Psalms till he was in affliction. Affliction teaches us, and, and we could substitute the word desert for affliction here. The desert teaches us to know ourselves. In prosperity, we are for the most part strangers to ourselves. God makes us know affliction that we may better know ourselves. We see that corruption in our hearts in the time of affliction, which we would not believe was there. Water in the glass looks clear, but set it on the fire and the scum boils up. In prosperity, a man seems to be humble and thankful. The water looks clear, but set this man a little on the fire of affliction and the scum boils up. Much impatience and unbelief appear. Oh, says a Christian, I never thought I had such a bad heart as now I see I have. I never thought my corruptions had been so strong and my graces so weak. You see, what happens to David in Psalm 13 is he begins to pray. And in the midst of prayer, he understands the promises of God. And he says, and and he can go out joyfully when he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. I still have the hope of heaven before me. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I would ask us in the midst of our lives, I think that we would do ourselves a service if we actually began to write out our laments to the Lord. 
you know, we are in the midst of asking God and, and writing our own laments. The first is this. There's, here's, here's how you do it. Okay, if you're taking notes, there's one, two, three, four, five, six things that you can do. I'll just go over them really quickly. First, it's like this. Just tell God where you are. Where are you? Just write it down. Nobody else is going to read it. It's just between you and the Lord. Secondly, ask God questions like why, when, how. Ask him those questions which burden your heart. And after you've told God where you are and you've asked him all the questions, see if there's any sin in your heart that you need to repent of. And then as you're doing that, I want you to pray through the gospel and go through the gospel promises and go, what does Jesus do for me? How is the gospel good news to my soul? And then I want you to ask specifically for the help you need. And after you've done all of those things, most laments end in praise and thankfulness. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is working in you through the desert to build you up into an oak of righteousness. It'd be helpful for us to lament. Are there things in this world that you're lamenting right now? If this broken, twisted, bent world doesn't cause you to lament, it's because you have a lack of love. Because if you love deeply, you will see the brokenness and God invites you to ask him all the hard questions. He's strong enough for you to question him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that in the midst of the desert wanderings of our soul, that we would run to you. And that in the midst of the questions that we ask and the difficulties that we bear, that we might find great faith and trust in you. Lord Jesus, help us. Fathers, you cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord, our Father in heaven, answered with the resurrection. May the resurrection be the source, be a source of great hope for us. Father, thank you that we are never abandoned. Father, help us, help us, save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.